and welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. Oh, he's back. Oh, dang it. He's I back. tried to do a different voice. Wait, so let me get, okay, what were you trying to do? I don't, I will, it'll, it'll, it'll tie in with the quote I'm doing later. Uh, okay. I was trying to do that voice and it just didn't happen. I'm not doing a Richard Norton quote. Okay. So forget about it. Interesting, interesting. All right. So uh, aside from your accents being slightly off today, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Excellent. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, You know, status quo here. Uh, It's a little, oops, excuse me. I dropped my pen. It's a little less hot this week in Fresno, which is nice. It's still hot, but just less hot. So it makes it manageable. Like I've been able to work out in my garage again in the afternoon and not die. I'm still, I'm drenched in sweat, but I'm not hallucinating like I'm in a sweat lodge. So uh, yeah, Uh, other than that, I mean, just doing my usual, you know, looking for a job, training, going to Muay Thai, hanging out, the usual, but I do have a long-awaited vacation coming up soon, so that's exciting. Yes, yes and it'll be our first proper vacation since 2017. Wow! Because I mean, what do you define as a vacation? I, I think I think if I were to define it, if you're planning it with someone, both people have to be off, and not just one person on a two-day extra add-on from work. I think also it's. There's a plan involved, even if it's a staycation, but even staycation, I don't know if you could count that as a vacation. It, there has to be a plan of we are from this time to this time not doing work and possibly going somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I feel like the going somewhere is a necessity for a vacation. So yeah, we haven't gone on a vacation since we went to the Philippines in 2017. Otherwise at best, it's been like three day weekends and we the only place we've traveled outside of the state would be Vegas for like a weekend. So yeah, yeah we have not been on a vacation in six years. So we are going I, I think I think duration also has to come into play there too. Yeah. It has to it has to pass the 72 hour mark. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely uh looking forward to uh, Lake Tahoe. Excellent. Yeah. So it's gonna be nice and relaxing and then probably pretty gung-ho once we get back, but that I still won't be leaving for that for like another 10 days. But uh, yeah, excited to talk about the movie we are discussing today. It is- Absolutely. Oh yeah, it's a classic. It's a genre favorite. It's a fan favorite. It's everybody's favorite. It's a film. Uh, I feel like a decent amount of people outside of genre fans have seen uh, or at least heard of. And- it's a great one to break down and analyze because we won't have to deal with the same sort of scenarios we were last week. Yes, there's technically like two different cuts of this film, but nothing too crazy like last week where we just, man, and we apologize about that. We we didn't plan to <laughs> talk that long about the different cuts of Chinatown Kid, but it just ended up happening and it ended up being quite convoluted, but it was kind of a necessity in order for us to understand the narrative of the film and character development and all that stuff. But, uh, and, and, and it's, you know, that's, that's one thing we could, we could always talk about the straightforward films, but within this genre that we love so much and we discuss so much, there are a lot of convoluted, 
uh, releases because of all the different hands that are all the different cooks that are in the post-production uh, kitchen, so to speak. And and it's I think it's important that we we don't not acknowledge these and we we have conversations about about these films because you know within within these hidden uh, cuts or these different the hidden scenes the cut scenes there's so there's a lot of richness there and there's also a lot of cultural referent richness that that delineates the the Hong Kong release the mainland China release the Malaysia release the 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 US release the Japan release so that, like each how how films shift, shape shift coming out of the Hong Kong industry for for the respective markets. Yeah, there you go. So uh, let's get into talking about the world of martial arts, martial arts movie news. Uh, anything in specific you can think of aside from the plethora of Blu-ray releases, which once again, always great news and they just keep coming, which is good news because that means people are buying them. It's becoming mm-hmm. a lucrative business, which means we're going to get more and more and more. In fact, today, it may have actually arrived while I was working out in the garage, my copy of Magic Cop with Lam Ching Ying will be arriving. So, oh, that's fun. Yeah, I'm super excited. Never seen it. Uh, and that's that's the great part also is a lot of these films we've heard of for years, we've read about, never had the chance to see, and now they're getting releases. And sometimes it's more obscure ones, and I'm all about it. I'll pay $30 for a Blu-ray for some obscure Moon Lee film from the 80s. Heck yeah, I will. Yeah, no, I I, I don't doubt you. I, I, re- I, uh, I remember wrestling with myself whether I would pay the $150 for the VHS tape of Under the Gun. Uh, full disclosure, I didn't. I waited a few years. Sorry, Mr. Norton. But I waited a few years for the for the price point to be uh, not not for video store direct distribution, but actually for the the general public. Speaking of VHS, so I get something in the mail the other day, and I thought it was one of Jessica's birthday presents coming way early because her birthday is on Thursday, and so I, I have to hide it. I'm like, don't look at the mail when I bring it in. I think you you know you may have a gift in here, so I bring it upstairs, and I. Open it up, and I realized it was something I grabbed on Prime Day. <clears throat> oh, man. Wait, zoom out a little bit. Desert Kickboxer. That's right. Wow. It is, But the crazy part is it's sealed. It's a brand new copy of Desert Kickboxer, the Isaac Florentine-directed film starring John Hames Newton, who a lot of people would remember from the Superboy TV series and also a couple episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. So uh, here's my question for you. As you hold that VHS tape, Mm -hmm. does it feel light or does it feel heavy? Oh, this one's definitely medium, like in between. So I think it's it's, it's a higher quality one. That's that's good. We we did experience a very extremely light uh, sort of Bushido recently when you came down to visit and that thing snapped the moment I hit play. Of course, we had the backup super heavy industrial strength version right. that we were able to watch. But yeah, the, you can tell at what point of the VHS uh, of the VHS industry a tape was produced by it, its weight. Exactly. But And I've got to read this tagline. Navajo. Warrior. Kickboxer. Cross the line of his law and you'll live to regret it. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a great one. I haven't seen it since I rented it 
on VHS back in the day. And I th- if I'm not mistaken, it is Isaac Florentine's very first film that he directed, major motion picture or straight to video, not counting his, excuse me, his student films. But you see the early trademarks of Isaac Florentine and it's a fun, low budget action film. So I'll have to bring that down for our next trip and maybe we Please can uh, throw that in the uh, good old VCR. Please do. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, but speaking uh, of which, there uh-huh. is a there is a date coming up uh, at the New Beverly in August. I feel like it's around the 14th. Yeah, that is correct because it's when I okay. get back from my vacation. I'll have been back for like less than 24 hours. Then I'm going to head down for the double screening at the New Beverly of Jean-Claude Van Damme. I know what everyone's thinking. Okay, sweet, probably Bloodsport and Kickboxer or, you know, Double Impact. No, none of those. And I have seen Double Impact on the big screen at the Egyptian, so that's awesome. It's actually a double screening that I'm really excited about. In fact, in all honesty, let's say it was Double Impact and like something else, I probably wouldn't come down simply because I have seen those on the big screen before. Mm -hmm. But this is a double screening of Double Team, and knockoff. So these were pretty much Van Damme's, if I'm not mistaken, his last two theatrical releases before he kind of went into the realm of straight to video. And they're both uh, directed, or excuse me, produced and directed by uh, Choi Hark. Or does, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think Sam Hung, doesn't he do knockoff? He does not direct knockoff. He does no. the uh, he, does, he does the action. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and in all honesty, knockoff is a fun but not a good movie. I enjoy it. Genre fans will enjoy it. It's kind of like a, maybe not even cult classic, but Double Team is one of those ones that I stand with to this day as being a great action film and super underrated, like well, really so, underrated. So here, here's my my take on both of those films. Knock Off is a film of pure potential where where Jean-Claude at his peak and perhaps at making his healthier decisions off in his personal life, working with Samo would have been phenomenal. My take on Double double Team is I've seen 15 minutes of the film. I loved it and I stopped it so that at one point in my life, I would get to watch it on the big screen. This is one of those films that is wait for the big screen. So this will be my first full viewing of Double Team. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. So now it makes it even more exciting. I So no spoilers, but Double Team is, it's a heck of a lot of fun. I loved it when I saw it as a kid. I saw it not right when it came out, because once again, rated R, but shortly thereafter. Uh, and I loved it. And I was like, why did this get like such terrible reviews and stuff? Yes, Dennis Rodman is over the top, but he's endearing in his performance. And it's like, he's not trying to be anything other than Dennis Rodman. So you got to love that. Mickey Rourke is great as the villain. It was really my first introduction to Mickey Rourke. And he he's over the top, but in all the best ways. He's still, in my opinion, giving a fine Mickey Rourke performance because Mickey Rourke is kind of crazy. And just the the cool, slick style of Choi Hark, uh, yeah, there's a lot of great elements to it. So super pumped for that. You can see, you can buy your tickets on the New Beverly's website. We will be there. And yeah, you all should come too. But anyway, any final martial arts movie news? Well, as I texted you this week, and I mean this with all due respect to the film, uh, to the theater, I feel like I found the Tubi of movie theaters. Uh, 
the Lumiere, Luminary Cinema at the Music Hall. So it used to be a Lamley okay. theater. It's now the Luminary. Uh, it's playing a gr- bunch of great films, just one screening a day. Uh, great films. I don't know these films, but I am going this week to watch Fear the Night, the new Maggie Q film. Excellent. They are also playing The Island with Michael Jai White. Unfortunately, the start times, I was hoping to make it a day or double feature, but essentially their start times on every single day are five minutes apart. So it's one or the other and Maggie Q gets the vote. There you go. I think that's a good choice. Uh, I mean, simply because Michael Jai White has a lot more output that eventually makes it onto a streaming service. I think it'd be more unique especially just because I know the plot of the Maggie Q film. And I think you made the right choice. I think it's a good one to see in theaters because it kind of has that horror aspect. Yeah. Yes. It's like a horror set up for a action payoff. Right. Is what I'm, is what I'm hoping. So yeah. well, I'll let you know. I'll report back next week. Excellent. And other than that, uh, I want to send condolences to everyone that bought the Bruce Lee box set from Arrow Video, which apparently the content is phenomenal. Not disappointing, totally worth it. You've got the Mandarin cut of The Big Boss. You've got the missing log scene of Game of Death, tons of documentaries. I believe the one that I contributed to in terms of getting Sugarfoot on there, I think this as part of that box set. I'm not sure if it's going to be there or the future Bruce Bloitation one. But the main issue is apparently a ton of people's actual physical box sets came in damaged. And it's very disappointing, especially once I saw the price tag, as I was telling Gavin before recording, I buy these kind of box sets a lot. And if they had a little damage, I'd be like, oh, okay, no big deal. Like, because I was thinking it probably cost around 100 US dollars. No, mm-hmm. it cost like four times that, five times that. So now I see why people are so upset uh, because it's a collector's item. So yeah, I, I don't know what can really be done about that. From what I read, Arrow is offering like a 10% rebate back but i think people are like no i want a new box set so i don't know uh definitely disappointing for certain collectors i'm sure but i've heard that the the actual like content in terms of the films and everything else is incredible so yeah maybe we'll get an american release of it by the end of the year i don't know but hopefully so it'll be my third blu-ray box set of bruce lee films (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like each time there's one little thing that you need to get from that particular version. So who knows? Who knows what will happen after that one gets released? And there will be something else. And there's going to be a long lost Bruce Lee film, et cetera, et cetera. But anywho, I think that's most of our news for the day. Uh, do you have a quote for me? I do. Okay. I, do. I have two quotes. They're from the same movie, so I'm only going to do one. One is an easier, low-hanging fruit. It's a more relevant quote, but I'm not going with that. Oh, okay. You're trying to- I'm going with the with the fruit that's a little higher up the tree. Excellent. All right. All right. The quote, the okay. quote without an attempted, uh, with an attempted voice is, okay. it's supper time. It's supper time. I can do it with the voice. Well, I mean, technically that's, okay, okay. Let's see here. If I had to guess, and maybe like feeding an exotic animal or something, uh, it's supper time. Oh, I just had a flash in my head. It's supper time. Oh. Oh, <laughs> wait. Do I not have wait, to no, do the voice? Wait, no, shut up, shut up. Oh, no, I was thinking of something completely different. Okay, give me, sorry. Give me, give me, give me a hint. Okay, the voice. Okay. It's supper time. 
Think, think a great it's the dub English dub of Wheels on Meals. Yes, there, there we go. go. There we go. Okay, that it's funny. Your accent worked as soon as you said it. I, I, I knew what it was. Yep. Yep. Uh, I would just, I don't know what it came over me. I think it's slightly relevant to the to two of the last three films we've done. Okay. Food, food scenes that I'm texting AJ about. This food is making me hungry. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's supper time. Okay. I like it. I love it. All right. So now, are you ready to discuss our film for today? Oh, indeed I am. Okay. Today, we are talking about the 1993 Golden Harvest classic, Iron Monkey, directed by the one and only Ewan Wolping and starring a whole bunch of amazing people, including Yu Rong Kuang, Donnie Yen, uh, Li Fai, Anji Tang, uh, Jean Wong, Yen Chi Kwan, etc., etc. So, Iron Monkey, in my opinion, is probably the greatest wirefu film ever made. Now, then you ask, what's wirefu? And once again, we're breaking, we're creating a new subgenre of the martial arts film genre. And but you know, the thing is, it's it's interesting whether or not you could even consider martial arts as a film genre. And I know maybe people could be up in arms about that. Of course it is. Well, no, I agree with you, but maybe it's more appropriate uh, to call it, as some scholars would, a movement. Like, And then within the movement, there's all these little sub-genres of martial arts films. Now, Wire Fu, in my opinion, differentiates itself from a traditional kung fu movie or from a wuxia picture. Yes, the wuxia pictures are known for wire work, but it's very distinct fantasy-oriented wire work in the sense of like crouching tiger, hidden dragon, flying through the trees, etc., etc., wire foo is kind of the combination between the two it's like we're doing kung fu but we're flying around on wires and i i know that you you'd be crossing in between both genres between the gong fu pian and the wuxia pian but that's why i think this is the perfect example of wire foo and i think it's the peak of wire foo because there's certain kung fu movies that utilize some wire work to accentuate the action First one that comes into mind would be something like Fist of Legend with Jet Li, but I would not call that wire foo. There's a decent amount of wire work used to accentuate some of the the kicks and this and that, but it's not 100% throughout the whole thing. Iron Monkey utilizes wire work throughout every fight scene almost nonstop while still having what would be technically, quote-unquote, traditional kung fu choreography. So we'll get into discussing that more, but that's what I mean by saying Iron Monkey is the ultimate wire-fu film. Now, when I picked this one, you were excited. You said it held a special place. So when was the first time you saw this film? It had to be early 2000s. Okay. uh, When I was going on my... um video renting binge uh, between working on different film production shows. You know, you'd have two weeks off between shows or between seasons, et cetera. So I would just, you know, hit the video store, grab four or five videos, whatever the max was at any particular video store, go home and just kind of uh, recoup by resting and and watching. Uh, and the reason I said this, this shared a special place is this Likely was my first Donnie Yen film with me unknowing who he was. Oh, 
You know, okay. there, I had seen I'd seen his work before, but not really knowing who he was. This also is just as you said. It's such. It is probably the best wire foo film. It it's just so good that it stood out amongst the mountains of videotapes and VHS tapes I was renting at the time. When when conversely, when did you first see it? Okay. So for me, and let me ask you this real quick. So you say the early 2000s. Now, was this the U.S. release that you saw when it got released in 2001? So Miramax did a release with like Quentin Tarantino Presents. And it was, uh, I've technically actually never even seen that version. But they did make some slight editing and music changes. Kind of like, you know, with the, the Jackie movies. But nothing too substantial, say, like our film from last week. That's a fair, very fair question because I definitely saw it around the time that I was working at martial law or working on martial law. So that had to be post. Nope. Then you. No, no, that's right. So it was before it was right before that. Yeah. That I saw it. Okay. So, So and I think I may have even rented this from a Japanese video store. Okay, so, so it was probably the Chinese, Cantonese, Hong Kong release with Japanese subtitles. Okay, good to know. Very interesting. So for me, same thing. I saw this film. So I'd already heard about this film. And keep in mind, once again, the, the late 90s was like my martial arts movie renaissance where I discovered everything post like, you know, Jackie's movies coming out. Once again, Rumble in the Bronx, First Strike, Operation Condor, Mr. Nice Guy, all those. Then... I started having more access to them in terms of spending more time also at my dad's house where there was a Hollywood video and a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So as I always say, by the time I hit high school in the fall of 2001, I had seen almost all the classics, as crazy as that is. I had found a way to watch them. Uh, I had seen, you know, by that point, Every Jackie movie I could get my hands on that was available, both old school and current. You know, same thing with UNBL, Sabo Hung, Donnie Yen, Jet Li, Gordon Liu, uh, anybody else in between. Uh, I mean, even Sonny Chiba, as I said, I didn't really get as much into him until later. But uh, that being, and of course, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Gary Daniels, those guys. But so this film, I remember I definitely saw before high school, and it was the original Tai Sang release, which is uh, the English dub version, which is on the Blu-ray now that I have the, uh, I think it's Eureka, released. So I saw it a couple years before it came out in theaters, and I had I had already seen some Donnie Yen films. For example, Legend of the Wolf. Uh, I had seen, uh, let's see here, by this point... That actually, Legend of the Wolf may have been. Oh, Iron Monkey. Excuse me. Uh, Once Upon a Time in China too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there had been a few, but not. I didn't have as much access to Donnie Yen until like a couple years later. Uh, but I remember first. First of all, I had heard about this film. I had read about this film in one of my martial arts movie books. I knew it was a classic. You know, genre defining. And then this is going to be a total random uh, story, but I was at a family event. And so my aunt, Chris, one of my dad's siblings, she was the one that actually introduced me to best of the best and uh, lent me her VHS copy permanently. Uh, I still have to this day, but she comes over or we have this family event one time. She says, hey, you know, uh, I think your cousin Jacob, her son, has something he's going to give you uh, a movie. 
And I was like, what? Well, what movie? And she said something, it's called like Iron Monkey. And I was <laughs> like, what? He has a copy of Iron Monkey? So this would have been, you know, probably like 98, 99. And long story short, I think she'd misunderstood what he said because the whole night I thought he was messing with me, uh, like not telling me or not giving me, but I don't think he ever intended to give it to me. Uh, and he didn't have it with him or anything. So I was like, oh, dang it. So that was like my first close call. Eventually I found a copy at... Uh, Hollywood video, watched it. And then I I specifically, I just remember that it would have been probably 1999 or 2000 because by the time I got into high school in the fall of 2001, as I've mentioned, uh, jokingly, you know, I, I, I went to school I had a lot of Chinese classmates but none of them were really into Kung Fu movies. It was like my other Southeast Asian diaspora friends that were into Kung Fu movies including my friend uh, Thomas who is Vietnamese and uh some of our other mutual friends, I, I think maybe one was Cambodian or something. Anyways, they were the ones that were into Kung Fu movies. I remember them asking me like, okay, so you like Kung Fu movies. Have you seen Iron Monkey? I was like, hell yeah, I've seen Iron Monkey. I've got a copy of Iron Monkey. <laughs> because in all honesty, what may have happened, I was walking with my VHS copy I'd ran from Hollywood Video. As I'm walking, I trip. I trip and fall and the VHS tape flies out of my hands, goes into my VCR. As this happens, I also happen to bump into a spare VCR I had on the counter. This spare VCR flies next to the other VCR, and as it lands, has cables in the back of it, then connect to the other VCR. As I continue to trip, I accidentally hit play on the VCR that has Iron Monkey while simultaneously rolling over and then hitting record on the other VCR, which happened to have a blank VHS tape in it. Therefore, recording the Iron Monkey tape I had from Hollywood Video onto a blank VHS tape, therefore giving me a copy. But it was completely accidental, not intentional, as you can tell from my story. So therefore, the FBI cannot do anything about it. Well, and, and, you know, it's completely plausible because as we were discussing earlier, as like what level, how heavy is your kickboxer, desert kickboxer, VHS tape? The truth is these heavy cassette tapes, they're very heavy for a young man to carry around. There's a lot of tripping, a lot of falling, and this scenario has happened time and time again. I can assure you, I've seen it. I've experienced it. Yes. It, it just, I did not do it on purpose. I, you know, it just happened. That's, it's just what happened. But anywho, yes. So uh, I saw this film, what would probably most likely be very late 90s or like the year 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, and here's the interesting part. And I've discussed this in the past a little bit. Now, when I first saw this film, I liked it, didn't love it. Now, when I watch this film, I absolutely love it. And a lot of that has to do with, at that time period, I was much more into grounded, solid, real action. I didn't really like Wire Foo. I hadn't really seen all that much uh, of, uh, or that many films within the wuxia genre, pretty much really only Crouching Tiger, which I enjoyed more as a film uh, as opposed to a martial arts film. But- mm -hmm. I, it, I just wasn't that into Wire Foo. I did like Iron Monkey, though. Like, at that time, I probably would have given it a B rating or something. But, for example, I really didn't like the Once Upon a Time in China films at that point in time. But also, these were early American cuts that I feel like edited a lot of stuff out. I now highly enjoy 1 and 2 when it comes to the Once Upon a Time in China series. But 
it's funny, as an adult, I've learned to appreciate more the more fantastical wire work epics, and I highly enjoy them. I think a lot of that comes from, at that time, I was into the more grounded, hard-hitting, kickboxing-style action, because in my mind, I was like, oh, this is real fighting. This is like what a real fight is like. Then years of doing martial arts, becoming a competitive Muay Thai fighter and kickboxer myself, discovering what real fighting is, I could still enjoy those kind of films, even though obviously it's not like quote-unquote real combat. But I guess maybe just from having experienced the real thing, I now have an appreciation for the more fantastical side too, because it's something that I know can't be replicated in real life, and it's just a fun bit of escapism. It's sort of like how as a kid... I didn't like anime at all. I didn't watch it at all. Just it was weird to me. And now I love watching anime, especially with Jessica. So, well, you, you know, it, it's interesting because I think we've talked about a lot of films that have used wire work before. I, you know, I think we've talked at length about Jet Li's filmography, about how some of his films are just top of the genre, top of filmmaking period, and then other films. There's so many of his films that just feel uh like the like the sting is taken out of them by all the wire work or the sped up camera work or the undercranking uh so i had the same it's interesting because i i was looking back on on when martial law the tv show ended i think it was may something 2000 so i probably saw this film for the first time around june 2000 um so with that in mind and with what you're talking about i think our 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 entry to this film the first time seeing it we had a similar mindset we had a similar uh i don't know reticence to to a lot of wire work for me uh i think what hooked me early on in the first viewing was seeing wong fei hong not as the lead protagonist, but as like the co-lead protagonist or, you know, on, on a call sheet would be number three on the call sheet. It was just really, or number number three or number two on the call sheet, just really, uh, I always gravitated towards that character and to see, um, to see Wong Fei Hong as a child, to see Wong, you know, his father as like the, as uh, interacting with our lead protagonist. It just is, it was like, the opening up of a world for me uh, that's probably based on legend, based on folklore, based on reality, and based on fiction. Just just opening up this whole world for me. So the first time, my first time viewing, I may have had a slightly higher appreciation than you did, maybe not. But I was, I think this was my first wire foo film that I was like, okay, I'm starting to understand. So that's another reason why it sort of holds a special place in my in my film film viewing history. It just it's when it finally started to to click for me where I was where I was going to say I'm going to suspend my disbelief and enjoy this. Nice. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because even when I first viewed it, I already knew who Wang Fei-hung was at that point, obviously from the Drunken Master films, uh the Once Upon a Time in China series. I knew him, I knew the iconic music. Uh, uh and you, you bring up two notes real quick. So, that's why I was asking if it was the American cut you saw because apparently the American cut it changes the music, no big deal, cuts out some of the the slight more comical gags. I'm sure probably like the scene where Donnie and puts the pepper in his mouth and he's like, "Ooh, this is hot," you know. But the other thing it it does is it 
so it takes out the Wong Fei Hung theme, uh, which we all know is the iconic Wong Fei Hung theme. But then mm-hmm. also the undercranked action, it slows down. So that's why I'm interested in seeing it because yes, not only does this film utilize uh, wire work, it undercranks to the max. And it's one of those ones where it's not a question. It's like they do it, they do it intentionally, but it works also because everyone's martial arts skills they are performing are of the highest level. So it's sort of like, you know, you can undercrank I don't really have a good analogy for it, but it'd be like, uh, it's still incredible martial arts they're doing. It's just undercranked. If you undercranked somebody that was, for example, maybe more from the basher genre of the early 70s and didn't have as high a skill level, then it's going to look really hokey. But uh, for example, even in some of the no shadow kick sequences where Donnie Yen's uh, kicking at a godlike speed because of the undercranking, his technique is still perfect. And so therefore... Mm-hmm. It kind of works, but I digress slightly simply because I was going to say when I first saw this film, yes, I'm aware that it's a young Wong Fei Hung, but for me, I never considered this a Wong Fei Hung film. And I looked at, like you were saying, like third on the call sheet, but even lower down, I was like, oh, okay, it's more like Wong Fei Hung's a supporting character. When in actuality, the Chinese title for this film includes Wong Fei Hung in the title. It's literally young Wong Fei Hung and the Iron Monkey type uh-huh. thing, really. And now when I rewatch it, it definitely feels like a Wong Fei Hung film to me, even though he's not the main protagonist. Uh, it's more so our Iron Monkey character and Wong Fei Hung's dad, Wong Kei Ying. But it's really interesting you say that about the young Wong Kei Ying because we don't really see that as often. Yes, there's the Ten Tigers of Kuang Tong film and so forth. But in watching the behind the scenes features, Donnie Yen specifically says, I treated Wong Kei Ying as Wong Fei Hung. Like they're the same person. So in yeah. his mind, he's literally playing what the, the Wong Fei Hung character we typically recognize. He's just playing his dad. And I don't think he meant that in a derivative type way. It was just like in his mindset, that's what it was. You know, the son becomes the father. So here we are. We're having an introduction to the young Wong Fei Hung and where he got a lot of his characteristics from would be his father. No, you're absolutely right. And and it's interesting because the the father, Wang Kei Ying, in many ways is it's how it's how we want our strong fathers to be. He is very stern, he is very strict, but you also we also as an audience see his soft side. And what's interesting is Wang Fei Hong is known to be a sort of very strict uh person throughout history, but also with the magnanimous side, a very giving, caring individual. And it's funny because one of the one of the great quotes that emerged from this film was uh a man should shed blood before he sheds tears. Mm. And he tells us to his son Wang Fei Hong who's crying because they have to separate. And when Wang Fei Hong turns away or when Wang Kei Ying turns away, you see a tear in Donnie Yan's eyes. So you know that he's crying and he's but he's trying to guide his son into being a strong man. And and it's funny because while while stern words are being shared and and the way he raises his son is very strict, uh, the soft side is there, and the soft side emerges naturally when Wong Fei Hong, the, the the compassionate side. I mean, perhaps we shouldn't call compassion soft, but that that the yin and the yang that is perfect, like almost a perfect blend in the Wong Fei Hong character that we've come to grow and know. Uh, you see the seeds of it planted here, and partially through. 
Wong Kei Ying's sternness, but also through his also through Wong Fei Hong's slight training and interaction with uh, Dr. Yang. There you go. And so let's go over the basic premise of the plot. So unlike most Wong Fei Hong films, this does not take place in the South, or at least it doesn't really appear like it's supposed to. It's uh, I what feels like more like the North. It's a, in a Northern setting. And mm-hmm. uh, what we have is we have the character of Iron Monkey, who's like a Robin Hood. Uh, the setting is we have a pretty much a corrupt governor that... Uh, does not treat the people well. They're poor, they're sick. And so Iron Monkey steals from the rich to give to the poor. Uh, and in actuality, our Iron Monkey uh, is Yang Tian Chun, who is also a doctor. He runs a clinic with his assistant, Miss Orchid. And uh, Iron Monkey is played by the great uh, Yu Rong Guang. And uh, his assistant, Miss Orchid, is played by uh, Gene Wong. So they are kind of Iron Monkey and his partner, and they are causing havoc for the governor. Uh, and so at the same time, Wong Kei Ying, played by the great Donnie Yen, arrives in town with his son, Wong Fei Hung, played by Angie Tsang. And we'll get to that here in a second. And they end up getting caught in the middle of... Uh, what you might call a sweep where they're trying to find anybody that could possibly be Iron Monkey uh, in an attempt to draw out Iron Monkey, which they do. Uh, they witness Wong Kei Ying fighting with him and then decide that they're going to for- the governor is going to force Wong Kei Ying to capture uh, Iron Monkey. And they're holding Wong Fei Hung as a hostage. Amongst all this, uh, there is also a government official that shows up and. Uh, Play, uh, a character named Hin Hung, played by Yen Shi Quan. He's an imperial official who is even more evil. So eventually, Iron Monkey and Wang Kei Ying have to team up to fight against uh, Hin Hung. And that is the basic premise of the plot. So as you can tell, it sets us up for a lot of fantastic fight scenes, a lot of wire work wire foo fight scenes running on top of rooftops similar to crouching tiger hidden dragon but then also just a lot of wire work in terms of characters being able to like bounce on top of each other's heads uh floating around doing crazy aerial maneuvers that are obviously physically not possible culminating with a finale that was done almost exclusively with wires and took over 20 days to film. Uh, If you watch the the behind-the-scenes footage, it goes back and forth where they say, some people say 20 days, some people say closer to 30 days, but we we know it was at least 20 days and the actors were almost exclusively on wireworks the entire, excuse me, wires the entire time. It's, well, what I love about this film is, yes, it is sort of like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon where people are on their roofs and everything, but it also reminds me a lot of, uh, the ninja films from the 50s. Oh, okay. Uh, and even, actually even pre- preceding that, just just I love rooftop runs and rooftop uh rooftop fight scenes. You hear the like the the tile uh you know moving shifting as they fight. I just I, there's something uh that feels very um I don't know, maybe nostalgic for me. Uh not that I ran on roofs, but just that sound <laughs> in in a lot but, of the cinema. But you were a ninja. Oh, yes, of course, of yeah. course. Uh, and, and, you know, the other thing I, I love about this film is that our lead character is is, is essentially 
like a superhero. Yes. He is the Robin. He is a Robin Hood type character. But, you know, when, when AJ, when you mentioned this film, like, hey, let's discuss, you, you gave me two, you mentioned two options. What I loved about this is this is the summer. We're in the midst of a heat wave. <laughs> and summer are superhero movies. Summer yeah. is for when we, we, our heroes are wearing masks. And that's what we get with uh, Yu Rong Guang wearing his, wearing the mask, playing the, the good doctor. But also playing the Iron Monkey at night, Doctor by day, Iron Monkey by night, and it's such a great performance by him. In the contrast of him playing, he, it's very much a Clark Kent Superman type scenario. So it's a great analogy with him being a superhero because as the Doctor, he's very much not like he tries to be weak and feeble, but he's completely oblivious to Iron Monkey. Well, do you think you're going to be able to catch him? And it's a lot of fun, right? And yeah. he's so likable. I've always liked uh, Yu Rong Guang. Uh, and I saw him really early on, obviously seeing him in this film, uh, you know, Holy Robes of Shaolin Temple was an early one he did. And he just has a great screen presence. He's a very handsome man and a great smile. And it, he's an interesting choice because, uh, a little bit of background on him. So he is from Beijing. His uh, family lineage is Shandong, but he is actually a Peking opera performer. That's his background, similar to a lot of our Hong Kong guys, but he was in the actual Peking Opera in Beijing. So uh, his father was a very famous Peking Opera actor. And so he started learning the opera at like six from his dad. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when he was uh, 10, he was sent to the Beijing Drama Academy for six months uh, to learn proper opera and then joined a troupe at around 11 or 12, which was the Beijing uh, Feng Lei Peking Opera Troupe. And the interesting part is, so when you, so like, a lot of these guys, he started learning at six, you know, like Jackie was, I think, seven. Sammo was maybe a little, like eight or something when they start learning. And then he went full time into it at age 10, uh, you know, probably doing it. I think he did it a little because 1950, I think he was born in 58, I saw. Yeah. So it seems to be that he continued to do it into adulthood, unlike our Hong Kong uh, actors where the Chinese opera was kind of dying out at that point. I think it was still decently prevalent in Beijing because uh, according to internet sources, he was born in 58. His film career didn't really start till the mid 80s. So I'd imagine he was doing Peking opera all the way into his 20s because uh, he was quite famous in the Peking opera. Like, uh, you know, he was well known, which is how he ended up falling into films. It was more so mm -hmm. he was recruited. Uh, but it's interesting when you listen to him talk about it, he straight up says that he loved the life. He's like, he misses it sometimes where it's like, it was just the routine of getting up at 6am training, doing this, that, that. And, you know, he quite uh, enjoyed it. Uh, but yeah, he just got into films by chance because he had become quite famous in the Peking Opera, you know, producers saw him, saw his abilities and thought, okay, this guy can transition to film. So he was sent to train at the, with the Beijing martial arts troupe uh, under Wu Bin, the same coach that Jet Li trained under, which mm -hmm. is why when I uh, first saw him in this film and other films, I always assumed, and I knew he was mainland Chinese, mostly from his name, but I assumed he had a Wushu background. But And so he kind of technically does, but that's the thing you have to remember is these Peking opera performers, and as he says in this one interview I was watching, you know, the root is martial arts. And when you've been doing Peking opera for years, all the acrobatics, the tumbling, the falling, the martial arts, the weaponry, it's the perfect foundation to learn any other sort of especially more performance-based martial art, right? Like something like wushu. And so I think he took to it quite naturally. And that's why when you watch them like Iron Monkey and you see him doing that uh, pull form, 
you're like, how is this guy not a lifelong wushu practitioner? Well, he kind of was in a sense, right? If you, depending how you define wushu, but uh, under Wu Bean, he specifically learned like long fist forms, the pole and so forth. And that's why you see him just as this phenomenal martial artist. Now, how long he trained under Wu Bean? I don't know, but it's just like Jackie, Jackie and Sammo and those guys, they kind of just left the opera and started doing the movies and started learning martial arts as they go. Like in Jackie's original bio, if I, if I recall, he says something under the lines of for six months, intensely after he got out of the opera, he learned Wing Chun and boxing and this and that, which who knows how much truth is to that, but it's probably, it is probably a close uh, recollection for him of what really happened. I'd imagine it's the same thing for you, Ron Guang, right? He probably, uh, you know, spent like six months to a year intensely training with the Wushu team and then went in to start doing movies. Because at the same time, starting off in mainland China, they're going to want anybody performing to look their best, right? As a, mm-hmm. kind of a government censorship type thing, just like when you speak Mandarin, it's got to be perfect Mandarin. And even though this film was made in 93, after they had started filming with Sync Sound in Hong Kong, I do not believe this film was made in Sync Sound. First of all, because Yu Rong Guang did not speak Cantonese at that time yet. Uh, actually, Angie Tseng even talks about that in one of her interviews. They had trouble communicating because at that time she didn't speak any Mandarin. She was just a kid and he didn't speak any Cantonese. So they had some funny, uh, you know, uh, comical errors uh, in a sense. But yeah, so that's uh, Yu Rong Guang, uh, who is our protagonist. Uh, Donnie Yen, who would be like our co-protagonist. I mean, I think most people know Donnie, you know, uh, born in Guangdong, but then moved to Hong Kong when he was quite young, lived in Hong Kong until about 11, and then uh, immigrated over to the United States, grew up in Boston, then at age 18, uh, he was sent back to uh, China because his parents were afraid of all the trouble he was getting into with street gangs and fights. Uh, It should be noted also his mom was a very famous martial arts instructor in both Tai Chi and Wushu. So he started learning Tai Chi and like Wushu at like age four. And it's interesting, when you watch the behind the scenes interviews, everybody just talks of how skilled Donnie is and how he's like a true master and how good he is. Because when you start learning from a true master at like age four, slightly different than say Peking opera, like you're learning just the street martial arts stuff. And then on top of that, at age 18, he was sent to the Beijing Wushu Academy, the same one that Yu Rong Guang was sent to, to specifically train and learn Wushu for a couple of years after having already done it his whole life with his mom and so forth. You're going to have a phenomenal performer. The unique thing about this film though is in terms of the martial arts action and so forth, uh, Choi Hark didn't want to do... Yeah, because Choi Hark is the producer of this film, by the way. Uh, he and Yuan Ping, they didn't want to do the same traditional sort of Hungar style that uh, Wang Fei-Hung was known for. This, this is obviously evident even in the Once Upon a Time in China films, which were coming around the same time, that Choi Hark didn't want to utilize a straight Hungar's uh, style for Wang Fei-Hung, so much so that he had originally hired Lao Gar Wing as the fight choreographer for once the Once Upon a Time in China movies. I think he only did like one scene and it just didn't work out, hence why he brought in Yuan Wu-Ping. So now we're doing Iron Monkey with Yuan Wu-Ping as the director, uh, you know, his brother in there as the fight choreographer, which is kind of normal, which obviously Yuan Wu-Ping's going to have a hand in it. Anytime you have the UN clan in there, they're all going to be involved. But Donnie had said that no... Let's not do it the same way that, say, Lao Gar Lung used to, but let's utilize Hungar martial arts, but under this kind of more kinetic framework. Like, Mm -hmm. I should still do some of the poses and the hand movements and the blocks of Hungar uh, within this wire work, almost more like 
wushu-esque framework. And because obviously, like the kicking Donnie does is much more Taekwondo style, right? He does a classic triple kick. He does some great roundhouse yes. kicks, but he also strikes some poses. Now, but he doesn't do like the straight up, you know, classic hungar pose, which I don't know what it's called. Uh, I'm sure there's a name for it, but instead he does more like open hand kind of tiger claws and stuff and holds the poses. So there was an effort to bring in some Hungar, but I'm sure Hungar purists are going to be like, that's bull. It's nothing like Hungar. It's like, yeah. And, you know, then they're going to call, yeah, just like Donnie, you know, uses fake Wing Chun in the Yip Man movies. Well, I think the point being is he's taking this real life martial art and adapting it to a more cinematic uh setting and giving it his own flair. And in this case, I think it works quite well uh, for the Wong Kaying character. So so I love the background that you've just given us. Uh, one thing that I think helps with this, I don't even want to say tripod of martial arts that we see on screen from, um, from Donnie Yen and from you Rong Guai, can you help me with that pronunciation? You do so much better than okay. I do. So you, you, Rong, Rong, Guang, Guang. There you go. So I, I wouldn't worry about the to- uh, the tones. Just say oh, you, yeah. Rong, Guang, you, Rong, Guang. Yeah. So we we also have uh, obviously the we have we have the Wong Fei Hong character, but I think what really balances out this film is our heavy, our our. Uh, constable that comes to visit so the yen shi kwan which we just discussed was it two weeks ago yeah in the Fearless Fearless episode? and so the reason i was asking you about the criteria collection is i i was like i gotta find an interview with this guy i started doing some google oh, searching no. and but get, there's an interview on the criteria website but then i realized wait a minute the film that criteria uh criterion would have released that had Yen Shi Kwan would be Once Upon a Time in China. I have the Criterion box set. So I pulled it out and sure enough, there's an interview with him on there. I'm all excited. I put it wow. in there. First of all, it's from about at least 25 years ago. Second, <laughs> it doesn't give, it's a great little interview, but it doesn't give that much background. And it's even broken up into segments. And they say this part like martial arts heritage. I was like, yes, we're going to finally learn. Well, no, he barely says anything. And on top of that, the whole interview's dubbed. And, oh, that's too bad. Right. And so it actually appears he's speaking Mandarin. And what, from, I'm ga- from what I've gathered, he is from Shanghai. But it's not like those ones where you can hear the Mandarin behind the English dub where I can try to listen and see what yeah. he's saying. Yeah. It wasn't like that. So I, not to cut you off, but I didn't really get that much information about him. But go ahead. Keep going. Well, the, so, so what I think is what I want from a martial art film, and I think our best martial art films, is a is a heavy, is a antagonist that is so uh so uh i don't want to say far gone but is so invested in being uh a villain that your heroes have to be absolutely righteous so you have this good versus evil fight and what i also love about this film is you know we've talked about it before i think uh uh tai chi master had this uh, Project A has this where a lot of the films we've discussed have this where you're even even Lethal Weapon 4, where your villain is actually stronger than your hero. And mm-hmm. for your hero to overcome the villain, the hero does something that a villain won't do. It's to collaborate and work together, which is, you know, sort of like kind of teaching the audience that sometimes you have to work together to overcome, overcome, uh, I want maybe an evil, overcome, overcome something like 
the way he was ruling was almost cancerous to the society. Spot on, too, because there's no way that either Iron Monkey or Wong Kaying could have beat the Yin Shi Kuang character on their own. They have to team up to beat him because he's so powerful with his King Kong palm, which is this yes. poisonous Shaolin strike he has that if he lands on you, you will die. The only reason that uh, Iron Monkey and Wong Kaying don't die in their first encounter with him when he lands on both of them is the fact that they team up with their two medical uh, backgrounds. It's the Iron Monkey's idea to fight poison with poison. And then I believe it's Wong Kaying is the one who picks the actual poisons and then they save themselves. Uh, but excellent, excellent points all around. And so it's interesting when it comes to Yen Shi Kwan as being truly one of the great martial arts villains, but he's also great when he has a lead role. He's not a villain like uh, in Dragon Fist. And then also yeah. even in Once Upon a Time in China, he's antagonistic, but he's not the villain. He's more like a pawn. But what I was able to gather from this interview with Yen Shi Kwan, he started off as a fight master at Shaw's, whatever that means. I think that's kind of like, uh, just a stunt player, I think is what that was supposed to mean. He eventually was promoted to a choreographer's assistant, fight choreographer's assistant. Uh, his dad was a producer and director in Shanghai when it, uh, in the classic silent black and white films. This is obviously pre uh, World War II era when Shanghai was the number one film industry uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and then Yen Shi Quan himself taught traditional Kung Fu in China. Really? And that's all I was, and I replayed that twice, closing my eyes, trying to listen to the background noise. On top of that, this interview was in a dim sum place and trying to see if I could hear anything, like if he said a specific style or even if he said, uh, uh, like traditional martial arts. Uh, but it is interesting. He does talk about a distinct difference between Jet Li style of wushu, like mainland Chinese style sport wushu, and traditional martial arts. So I think he was a traditional martial artist of some sort. And he obviously says he taught traditional martial arts, but that's the translator. So I don't know what he was truly saying. So yeah. unfortunately, we don't have much info on him. But... uh the elephant in the room we need to talk about is right before recording, it appears Gavin was unaware or slightly confused that our young Wong Fei Hung character is actually played by a female. Indeed. I, I mean, I was just, I, for me, it was just a kid playing Wong Fei Hung. And by, by the way, I was going to open this episode rather than with a quote asking you, uh, when was the best, what's the best version of a young Wong Fei Hong in a fight scene with his father watching ever shot? And I, unfortunately, it's probably, a, it's an easy one because it's probably this film. Yeah. However, there's Millionaire's Express, Shanghai yeah, Express. This is true. That's a, and that's a little, little Wong Fei Hong. And that's a great uh, deep cut right there. But yeah, so it's interesting when they talk about the the casting of this character, it's a young Wong Fei Hung. And really it's the, I'd say it's the first, and this does not count Jackie Chan as a young Wong Fei Hung. We're talking child young Wong Fei Hung, right? Uh, like, in, for probably, example- Probably it, preteen? Well, well it's, yeah, he's supposed to be 10 years old. So even okay. in the Mandarin title, or I guess, and I'm assuming Cantonese also, but it's Xiao uh, Nian Wong Fei Hung, uh, or Huang Fei Hung. So Xiao Nian refers to like pretty much middle school age, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so it's the first uh, real 
version of that Wong Fei Hung character we've had is like one of the main characters of the story. And they wanted that childlike innocence, yet somebody that could still pull off the martial arts abilities. So when you think about it, to cast an actual 10-year-old would probably be difficult. But then if you cast a boy that's more like 14 years old, he's going to seem a little too old probably, or perhaps maybe. And that's why they ended up going with Angie Tsang. And really, it was kind of on accident because... They initially thought she was a boy at first. <laughs> uh, so, and Angie Tsang's background is very interesting. So, uh, she is from Hong Kong. Uh, she's born in 78. From what I gathered online, this wasn't in the interview I was watching from her. Everything else was from the interview, though. So, as a kid, her mom tried putting in her a bunch of different sports and, like, nothing really fit. And then when she was 10, they moved into a new flat and there was a kung fu school there. And she went and saw it and, like, fell in love. So, at age 10, she joins, but she was just doing lion dancing initially. And so, it appears that, uh, like, for the first few years, she was just learning lion dancing. And then uh, uh, her instructor... Uh, ha Tak King, so I'm assuming Ha Tak King Sifu, says to her, uh, she said in the interview, like, you're not a child anymore. You need to learn real Kung Fu because it'll be good for you. So she started learning Wushu under him at the age of 13. And within that first year, she won uh, what would be, uh, according to her, the first, but I'm assuming maybe it was the first, the first Hong Kong martial arts competition, like Wushu competition, and she won a gold medal. And through this, she was uh, selected by the Hong Kong Wushu Union for special training. And it was pretty much like when, uh, and I'm, they're never, they're not quite a hundred percent clear on uh, like who saw her exactly, or if they wanted her like, you know, within this group uh, under uh, Hatakin, but it wasn't until she sent in her CV, she said, that they realized she was a girl. But Yuan Wuping went to see one of her performances, really liked her, and I think the idea was, okay, she definitely can embody this young childlike innocence of a young male Wang Fei Hung, where it's like boys, girls at that age are almost slightly not androgynous in a sense, but, you know, they haven't really begun to develop the characteristics of distinctly their gender right and so here she is she's slightly older she has incredible martial arts abilities uh and so she can embody that childlike innocence that maybe a boy actor couldn't that being said although she had already won this gold medal and she was like a natural gifted performer i think kind of like a jet lee she was still very rough around the edges she admits it she was not very skilled yet at this point she had only been really learning wushu for like a year uh but she was a natural it's like Yuan Wuping would show her how to do something and she'd pick it up immediately. They'd be like, and she'd show what she already knows. Like, okay, that's good. This part sucks. Do this instead. And she'd be like, oh, okay. And uh, it was kind of just learning by the seat of her pants, as they say, right? Like, you know, and because of her natural ability, it comes off perfect in my opinion. She's she's great in the role of Wang Fei Hung. Later on in the future, she'd continue to learn Wushu and eventually she won all sorts of uh, you know, medals in the Asian Games, the uh, Southeast Asian Games, the World Wushu Championship, and she eventually did become a gold medal winner in uh, forms competition in the World Wushu Championship. So she did become a Wushu World Champion eventually. And, and how, the, how many how many years after that, that for is, this film? Uh, that would be about like 13 years later. I think it was, she was because competing heavily in the early 2000s from like 2000 to 2010 from what I was reading. And, and I believe she won that gold medal around like 2007. 
And essentially her film career, if I'm not mistaken, is just two films. Yeah, just she only did like one other film just after two films this. And then yep. dedicated herself to her martial arts and, and yep. came away with some gold medals as a result. Yep. And she's and, been a police officer for the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah. That's, it, that's a phenomenal life because I, I will say as as a as a child performer in this film, at first there's there's a at first, you don't know if she's going to be able to pull off the fight scenes, but the fight scenes that she is in are on point. I love uh, so I'm a huge fan of umbrellas, yeah. umbrella fight scenes. Donnie Yen's use of the umbrella is fantastic. Her use of the umbrella is fantastic, and then so what's great is she sees her father character using it, then she uses it a little bit, and then you see, uh, then she Dr. Yang trains her in pole fighting and then she does pole fighting. So it, it kind of, it, there's the implication of how quickly a young Wong Fei Hong learned, which kind of sounds a little bit like how quickly she learned as well. So there are some characteristics that are similar in their, in their learning patterns, but it's just such the group fight scenes that she's involved in are believable and fun. And that's something that I love to walk away from a film and love to be engrossed in a film while I'm watching it. Just just that believability, but also just there's something so fun about it. It just felt, it just felt so realistic where she's going up, going up a ladder to escape a very good opponent. Then the opponent doesn't come up because he's come up the other ladder. So then she has to escape another way. It's just a fantastic. Her sequences are fantastic. Her charisma carries the scenes, but then she also has has this uh, sadness to her. When yes. she's separated from her father, when she's in prison because they want her, Dr. Yang, to chase the iron monkey. Uh, it's just she has so many levels, so many layers of uh, as a, as an actress that to just you, you would think that she were she was a veteran. And it's right. hard to believe that this is her first film and only 50 percent of her film output. And she was a novice actress at that point, too. She talks about that in the interview. She's like, I had no idea what it what it to do with acting. Like at first she was staring directly into the camera and had to learn that. And she was talking about how great and nice Donnie was to her and how Donnie gave her a lot of acting tips. And it's funny because be like Act- Donnie giving acting tips. But uh, he, he knows he knows what he's doing. Oh, I, but, I, you, know, you and I agree on this. Like, yeah, yes. there's some people that don't. Uh, and, you know, everybody's uh, opinion varies. But, uh, yeah, so that was another thing she had to overcome is having never been trained in acting or doing acting. But uh, another interesting actor in this is so Yen Shi Quan, the, the governor or the official, his two main henchmen, one played by Xiao Ho, the famous uh, Shaw Brothers actor who was a Peking opera guy who then got into martial arts movies and so forth, uh, Mad Monkey Kung Fu. Uh, he has a much more... Uh, just kind of established, well-known background, but is uh, Lee Fai, who plays the kind of the witch character, right? Like the the evil, uh, uh, I guess, what what would you call that? Like a, a female henchman. What, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, uh, white Eagle is what they have her credit as. So yeah, that makes sense because she's always in white and stuff. And she also has the best uh, – good, the bad, and the ugly music cue introduction when she comes on the scene. Mm-hmm. And, and in the behind the scenes, Choi Hark specifically said it was supposed to be like the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when she first appears for the first time, it's... But uh, Lee Fai is an interesting one. So she's another one where she was originally from the mainland, from Guilin, uh, and she was 
Peking opera trained. So she had this background in Peking opera. And then uh, at age 15, this I read online, so I'm not sure it wasn't in the interview. She moved to Hong Kong. So this would have been like the, ma- the mid 80s. And it's funny, at the beginning of the interview, they say how she didn't start learning Kung Fu till 1989. That's what she said. And I'm like, wow, so she had only been doing martial arts for a few years before this? But that's because she grew up doing Peking opera. So once again, okay. like Yu Rong Guang, like a lot of our Peking opera stars, she didn't start learning uh, Peking opera until 1989, which according to her birth date I found online would have put her at age 20. But the interesting part is she only got into movies to pay for Kung Fu lessons pretty much because she <laughs> wanted to become a performer and like a world champion performer, which she, like Angie Tseng, did eventually become uh, like a world wushu champion uh, in both like traditional wushu forms. And then later, after she had a child in the mid-90s, she went over to Tai Chi, and I believe she also became a gold medalist in Tai Chi. But uh, yeah, so she was discovered by Ching Siu Tong, the famous director who did films like Swordsman and, uh, with Jet Li. And she literally did movies so she could afford lessons from top kung fu masters. So that's why she doesn't have this huge library of work either. But if you go on IMDb, a bunch of the films that in her interview I was watching, you actually see her stunt doubling aren't on there. But she like stunt doubled Maggie Chung and a bunch of these people. So she did a bunch of stunt doubling, uh, not as many acting roles. So this would be her biggest acting role. But she's a very legitimate wushu and tai chi world champion. Uh, And just another fantastic performer they brought on. So that's the thing. When you're doing a film like this and you're utilizing the wire work, you're utilizing the undercranking like we talked about, uh, you still have to have fantastic performers. Otherwise, I used to have a coworker that said, you could put lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig. It's sort of the same thing, right? If you had a bunch of people that didn't know what they were doing and you're like, here, let's give them some wire work and here, let's give them some undercranking, it's it's not going to look good. Yeah, no, I, I, and we've talked about this with some Western films that have attempted wire work undercranking where I know they're, they're big hits, but it just, there's no... It's a double, it's asking for double suspension of disbelief. And speaking of which, it's interesting you say that films, uh, because one of the films where I think that they did it well simply because they made them train so often and had the the same fight choreographer as this film, Yuan Wuping's brother, uh, is Charlie's Angels. Now, Mm -hmm. Drew Barrymore's big solo fight scene in that film is move for move, or at one, the main segment of it, move for move taken from this film. And it's a sequence where uh, Gene Wong as Miss Orchid is fighting off the evil Shaolin monks and she's doing some wire work. It's an extended take where she's bouncing up and down in the air and flipping. And they utilize that exact same choreography, move for move, in Charlie's Angels with Drew Barrymore. I I am now going to have to go back and rewatch that scene. And you'll see the split kick in the air. Yeah. So, uh, and that's the interesting part because she would be like the main cast member doing martial arts that didn't have a martial arts background. But what I really liked with her is the way they would utilize, obviously, the phenomenal wirework stuff, which may have been doubled, but they would have her finish almost all of her moves with a pose. Now, like Donnie Yen does this, he'll land in a pose. Yu Rong Guang does it where he lands in a pose. They do a great job of finishing their movements and then landing in a beautiful pose to cap it off or it's sort of like as I was thinking to myself as my dad used to tell me when I was playing basketball you you know you gotta uh, follow your shot right like you don't just shoot and then walk away like a you know some guys like to do you have to follow your shot or just like even today in Muay Thai we're doing some drills with the teep where you don't leave your leg out in the front after you've done the push kick you pull it back and then get back to your stance yeah it's 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 the follow-through right the follow-through and so 
they do a lot of that in this film, but specifically with Jean Wong, I like how maybe because she doesn't have the same skills, they give give her these beautiful poses to finish off in where she kind of twists her body and contorts in this way and is very flower-like, which makes sense for her character, Miss Orchid. So I think it's very appropriate and they saved... It's sort of like we talk about where sometimes they save the best choreography for maybe some of the performers that they're good, but maybe not the best. They're like, okay, we have to make them look better. So we're going to give them this really cool bit of choreography we came up with. Whereas we know we could have Donnie Yen just doing roundhouse kicks and we're going to be entertained for an hour and a half. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and it's funny, I can't remember if I said this earlier when you were going on your awesome uh, spiel about uh, little Wong Fei Hung. But another thing that makes his scene, the character scenes believable in this film is they're almost exclusively done with weapons. The umbrella, the pole, the pole being broken into two. And that also helps with this, uh, with Angie Tsang playing the character, you know, this young female actress playing this young boy, giving it a, a sense of credibility in the fact that, okay, you know, he's small and fragile still as a child. He wouldn't have the same physical strength, but he can utilize weapons. Right? Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, man, we're already at 70 minutes and I just feel like I we know. could keep talking another 70 we really minutes. Could, I, and I mean, like, we, we haven't really touched on, like, the, the, the human side and the comedic side of the General Fox character played by Yuan Shen Yi. Yep. I mean, he's such a perfect. He he's a great balancing act. He's not. He does. He follows orders. Who's another same, one of Yuan Wenping's brothers, by the way? Oh, okay. yeah, of course. Very yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's he's had a he's he's so recognizable. Such a great career in film. Uh, also, another actor in the in the film, Dion Lam, mm-hmm. who, of course, people might know from Infernal Affairs, but AJ and I know from Samo Blamo. He was, he was the second unit director on that episode. Uh, so he did seven episodes of martial law. Um, so anyway, anytime Dion Lamps and something, I'm like, Dion, but. My homie. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's so much more to, uh, to this film than even we've mentioned. And here's the deal. I watched it twice in the lead up to this. I watched the uh, classic English dub. Then I watched the Cantonese. I also, it ends up, even though it doesn't say it on the Blu-ray, it has a Mandarin version on there. Uh, so nice. yeah, and it's interesting. The only main difference I found is during uh, the Miss Orchid flashback sequence, where we find out kind of how Iron Monkey saved her from being a prostitute. In both the Cantonese and the Mandarin dub, she sings a song during the flashback. In the English one, it's just her talking because you know they can't really have the Chinese song playing. It would be kind right. of uh, a little confusing, but. Uh, and same thing w- at, in the end of the film when like the Wong Fei Hung theme is playing, it's like some children singing it. And the interesting bit is, and I was doing some testing of this in the Cantonese version, like during Miss Orchid's flashback, and I'm pretty sure it's her singing. Uh, the this song is kind of more like a a Chinese like pop song, but with the traditional flair. It's in the Cantonese version, the lyrics are in Cantonese. In the Mandarin version, the lyrics are in Mandarin. Same thing at the very end of the film where we have the Wong Fei Hung theme being sung. And I believe it's different lyrics uh, than the original version. In the Cantonese version, it's kids singing in Cantonese. In the Mandarin version, it's kids singing in Mandarin. So that's just a little note right there uh, that's uh, kind of interesting. Uh, But once again, this is one of those ones where it would not benefit me to watch it in Mandarin because the bits I was watching in Mandarin was just going right over my head. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Like it was too fast. It was they were using they were not using simple 
dialogue that I could keep up with. Uh, so yeah, I really gotta, I gotta Work. take a, Hey, if anybody out there that's listening wants to, uh, fund me a trip to go do an intensive three month course in Taiwan to get my Mandarin back up to snuff. Hey, you'll, I'll, you'll take it. I'll take it. And I'll let you co-host an episode with us. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So how about that for an incentive? But, um, uh, I so mean, I, I, w- I was going to say, this is available, obviously, through Blu-ray. Yes. DVD and VHS, if you have them. Uh, it's also streaming on Pluto TV for free. Okay. You got to sit through some ads. It's the English version. I don't... I'd have to double check. I'd have to look back to see which version is on there. Is that it's what you watched? I did watch some... I watched some of it there and some of it on uh, YouTube as oh, well. okay. Yes. Got it. Um it's also available on YouTube for rent and Amazon Prime for rent for okay. those who are seeking this film out. And you know what? I would say go ahead and seek it out. It's worth the $2.99, $3.99, or $5.99, whatever the rental uh, threshold is. Uh, a preferred version, I believe, for you and I is the premier max version, but the mere max version is okay. I've never seen it, so I can't speak to it. I mean, I, I feel like it's it – yeah, I'm not sure if I've seen it. Yeah, I've watched well, it this watched it a few times for many years. So Right. If it if it has the Wong Fei Hung theme music, then it's not the Miramax version. There you go. That being said, one thing we didn't mention is because we've talked about the fight scenes. I wish we could have gone into a little more detail. Uh, but this film is as much as it has character development we talked about, great performances, this and that, it's also nonstop fight scenes. Like there are so many fight scenes in this film, and it's a great combination of you know, like Wong Fei Hung does more like grounded Kung Fu. Donnie Yen does a little bit of both. Yu Rong Guang is a lot more wire work. The finale is definitely more wire work, but even some of, you know, the the fight scenes in between. It's a good blend. It's a good mix. You're not going to yeah. be disappointed. Definitely take the time to sit and watch this uh, like in a dark room, like in a movie theater type setting. Because that's my one thing right now is because it's summertime and the sun stays out so late and I go to bed so early, I don't get the chance to really watch these films like I'd like to. Like, you know, no lights completely out. My, you know, I have a nice big screen TV. I have my Blu-ray player. And that's truly the way to do it. So do this film justice. Unplug from your phone. Sit back. Enjoy. You will not be disappointed. Some fantastic performances. Some incredible wire work coming from a guy who isn't necessarily the biggest wire work fan. This is the quintessential wire foo film. Now, real quick. Absolutely. To finish with our language corner, can you guess what I'm going to teach us today? Wire. Now. Now. (laughs) Now. Hero. No, but that would be a good one. I'm going to teach us monkey. Oh, of course. There you go. Super easy. Uh, 猴子. 猴子. Yep. And so you have to be careful. Remember, it's ho, not hu. Huzi is mustache. Okay. 猴子 is monkey. 猴子. Yep. 猴子. Zi, Z-I. Think zi. 猴子. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, the the title of this doesn't actually use monkey in it. Use, it uses a traditional... Uh, kind of colloquial word for monkey, uh, which is ma liu. So uh, like tie ma liu, which translates as iron monkey. But uh, holds is the typical way of saying monkey. So there you go. There's our language corner. Another long episode today, but we hope you enjoyed. We hope we gave you some uh, cool little uh, tidbits of information about the cast of this film, which will make you appreciate their martial arts abilities even more when you watch it. 
All righty. Well, we'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, as a final send-off, Zai Jian. Zai Jian. Okay, see you next week.